Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Nathan Windsor, the co-founder of Landslide. Landslide is a new IBC-enabled avalanche subnet that enables any Cosmwasm-based dApp to run natively on the avalanche network. In this conversation, we touched upon the OG status that Nathan has in both the Cosmos and Avalanche ecosystems, the differences between both Avalanche and Cosmos at a protocol level, the security that can be levered by building in between and on top of the two, the role and need for permissioned and permissionless blockchain networks, and so much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens and that nothing should be taken as financial advice. Head over to www.neonewstoday.com to see a disclaimer on the tokens that might have been discussed in each episode. With all that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Nathan and I hope you enjoyed the conversation too. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we're joined by Nathan Windsor, the co-founder of Landslide. How are you doing today, Nathan? I'm stoked. Thank you for your time. I'm happy to be here, Dylan. Yeah, I'm really excited. This is going to be a super fun conversation that I had a lot of fun just preparing for because the two worlds that you're building in are just pretty awesome and have longevity in the broader blockchain space. But before we jump down the rabbit hole of who you are and what you're building and why, I want to get like a higher philosophical question from you. And I want to kick off this conversation by asking you, how does DeFi become more resilient by connecting different blockchain ecosystems? Great question, sir. DeFi becomes more resilient and people won't like this, but it has to become compliant. And as we're seeing from the US, that is a serious threat to DeFi. So we like to talk about smart contracts and on the other end of a smart contract violation is sometimes jail. The community is broad. So there are some people who refuse DeFi or there are some people who are DeFi maximalists. And then there are some people who are in between. So like, how do you make it more resilient is number one, you have to do compliance that's going to eventually come. And that means KYC. On the other hand, it also means coherent legislation, which the US just has not put forward to date. And then it also means better validation and more democratic access to validating node services. So we have to comply with the law. And once we're complying with the law, we have to make it open. So you don't want a centralization of nodes, of validator nodes. That's the whole reason that we got into this in the first place is that you don't want banks bailing things out. You want to have decentralized governance. You want to have decentralized validation. And what we've seen at, at Landslide, the way that we've put that into practice is IBC, which is the most open source protocol to bridge assets and Avalanche, which has no hard cap on its validators. Cool. That's awesome. Thanks for jumping into the deep end with me. So I do want to take two steps back because I'm a big fan of folks who have interesting paths and how they've ended up in the blockchain space. For context, I was a former urban planner and I learned what a 401k was. And then a year later, I was writing about cryptocurrency full time. 
So I'm curious to hear, how does somebody who graduated with a degree in biology from Cornell end up not even going into that field and doing something completely crazy and different once they graduate by going into the music space? Can you share a little bit about what your initial passion was in biology? And then after you graduated, how you moved into not just being a musician, but also being an entrepreneur in the space as well. Yeah. So just for anyone listening, I've listened to a bunch of shows that Dylan's done. And this is like one of his big questions that he likes to ask guests. So I commend you, sir, for being interested in people's backstories, because I think it makes this stupid tech world that we're ranting about more relatable and more interesting to people. And it gives people who aren't involved like a way to access the sort of incomprehensible. So yeah, my background was I, I went to Cornell. I graduated in 06 from the biology school. I thought I was you know, midway through, I, like a lot of people on the show, like I kind of like didn't want to do this anymore. So I finished in three years and graduated and then basically moved into music. And so from 2006 to 2020, I lived in New York City. Most of those years I spent in, in music and music therapy. So I worked in nursing homes, like singing to people in their end stage of life and transitioning into the great mystery and seeing a lot of people pass and, and helping people in their end of stage life. So I was playing guitar and singing and piano and drum circles and stuff, which is like way out on the other end of the brain. And then like being in New York, like it's a financial center of a lot of the world. And, and so I got to see a lot of these emerging. So the Occupy Wall Street movement happened. And then that community of people started talking about crypto as a method of self-sovereign identity or self-sovereign own your own finance, own your community economy. I mean, the title of your show is focused around the economy another iteration of economy. And so I happened to be around in Brooklyn when all these weirdos were talking about ETH and Bitcoin. And so like I read from Bitcoin to Burning Man, which was this like weird PDF written by like essentially burners connecting what Bitcoin was to how it relates to Burning Man and how these sort of small communities can change ownership of their digital assets. So yeah, and then from there, like I basically joined the communities like in Brooklyn. I went to as many meetups as I could. I bought Bitcoin and ETH in 2015, and I retrained as a developer in 2012. And I tried basically early ETH protocols. I helped fund some early ETH protocols, helped build some. And then our team at Landslide, now we've been together since then. And so now we were early Avalanche investors and validators. And so now we've built essentially like the connection to IBC because that's the next stage for us, I think, as a Web3 community. Yeah, I love that. I mean, Occupy Wall Street for me was the genesis for what do I do next? I was out of school at that time and I saw a lot of just frustration. And so actually for me, that's what spurred me to go to graduate school to study urban planning so that we could have a positive impact on cities and the urban infrastructure hundreds of years after we're gone. So it's really cool to hear that you had these ties and that Occupy kind of awakened you, especially when it comes to the ability to, to own your own digital assets in this case. And Occupy taught us that we can't trust the larger traditional financial institutions with as much blind hope as maybe we might have. So unfortunately, for the millennial generation, it was getting another Band-Aid ripped off and showing that the world isn't as pretty as it was told to us as we were growing up. 
But I think that's really cool. And so you bought ETH, you bought Bitcoin in 2015, and you were a coder for maybe about three or four years before you bought these first digital assets. I got into the space in 2017. And I remember around 18 is when the Cosmos SDK was coming out and folks were leaving the ecosystem I was covering on a day-to-day basis, the NEO ecosystem. We had one project leave to build a decentralized exchange in the Cosmos verse. So when did you first come across the Cosmos SDK, the Cosmos ecosystem? Was it around the same time as Avalanche? And what made you decide which one to build in first, I guess might be the best way to phrase it. So my background is mostly coming from Cornell on this. So the Cornell blockchain group, which is where all the Avalanche stuff comes out of, like early on, like in 2016, 2017, around that era, Dr. Sear Goon, everyone calls him Goon now, who co-founded Ava Labs along with Kevin Sekniki and Ted Yin. These guys early on in Cornell, he was a professor and they were running a domain called Hacking Distributed. And so as these ICOs, like you mentioned, like the, there was the Atom ICO and the ETH ICO and Hacking Distributed led by Goon and Kevin and some other researchers who would later go on to build like MEV stuff, Flashbots, Phil Diane being one of them. These guys were the nerds in the basement that were just like publishing these blog posts that like, maybe we shouldn't like have delegated proof of stake as a validating mechanism because it's like a beauty pageant contest and you could bribe people. And so they would have these opinions about the space that they'd publish as academics that I would read constantly because I was still involved with the Cornell community and be like, oh, these guys are like geniuses. This is obviously like they're providing math to support it. They're providing logic. And these people are not shilling something that's like vaporware. So then when Cosmos happened, Jaquan, who was one of the founders of Ethan Buckman and Jaquan, Jaquan was a, a student of Goon's. And so their implementation of Tenderman was influenced a lot by Goon and, and the work that they were doing at Cornell. But Obi-Wan training the other Jedis, it's sort of like, there's a lot of overlap there. And so just as a weird sort of side patch on this, Tendermint consensus is the consensus that's used in Cosmos. It's used all over the Cosmos stack. And Tendermint consensus is deterministic. And Avalanche consensus is probabilistic. And what that means, like Mr. Rogers' version of this, is determinism is, it's like 100% that you know something deterministically and probabilistically as well. It's like you're taking 99.999% sure. And so those certainty trade-offs have downstream effects. And one further thing I'll say about that, because we'll get into Tendermint versus Avalanche consensus, is that all of these chains that we see, ETH, Bitcoin, all these are about consensus, right? It's all about achieving consensus about what just happened. Did this team score a goal? Did this person send money? And so like all of this politics around and the regulation and the theft, all of this stuff that we see come out of this as a conversation is only related to our ability as sapiens to agree on what just happened. That's it. That's the thing. What just happened? Was it real? And can we verify it? That's the game. So that is mind-blowing to me. I didn't realize that there was such a regional tie to Cosmos and its founders with Jay, as well as Cornell and Avalanche. It's such an interesting kind of regional 
phenomena that you were quite poised to see the best and the worst of both worlds to build in and bridge them together. So I'm really looking forward to digging in more. I appreciated that you were just talking about the consensus mechanisms. And for maybe the listener who's not aware, I just want to ask you two more Eli5 high-level questions about both of the different networks so that as we're talking about them and using phrases and concepts and words that maybe the listener who's first hearing about both these ecosystems for the first time can keep up. So can you just really high-level elevator pitch share what Avalanche is and maybe talk a little bit about the subnets and then also talk about the similarities and differences with Cosmos and the app chains. Great. Okay. Avalanche, unlike a lot of other chains like Solana, ETH, Bitcoin, Avalanche and Cosmos and Polkadot are all these sort of multi-chain blockchains. It's not a single blockchain. So there's like a bunch of different things happening. So Cosmos has... It's hub, which is Atom. And that was where the initial ICO happened. And that's where a lot of security is. And that's where a lot of validators are. Okay, so that's the Atom hub. And outside of the Atom hub, there are like a hundred other chains on Cosmos specifically. So, and just so we understand means in terms of money. So last month in the last 30 days, there's been $2.1 billion in volume just on Cosmos that is secured by IBC. Okay. So in 30 days, 2.1 billion in volume. And in the last seven days, there's been like 627 million in IBC volume in the last seven days. And you could see this on map of zones. You just Google map of zones and you'll see the zones. Each of these Cosmos chains are also called zones and you'll see them interacting planets and an ecosystem. So that's really big news because that means IBC is like a transformative technology. And it also means as you secure more and more money, it becomes a national security issue, right? It becomes a national security technology. It's not just, oh, we're bridging meme coins. We're bridging sovereign assets and it could be used for stuff that's permissioned, right? Like banks want that. So Avalanche is very similar to Cosmos in that you can spin up millions of subnets. So the future of Avalanche as we know it will be like basically millions of subnets. Each of them can be secured by their own validator set. And the reason is because not everybody in the world has the mandate to validate public blockchains. And that's just reality. Like. Bitcoin maximalists can have an argument about it, but you know, JP Morgan is not going to validate right now blockchains. They would rather have an ETF and have it custodied by all the words. <laughs> you just have all the financial words. That whole chain of events has to take place, but it can only take place if they run their own validators, if their own relayers, if they run their own infrastructure. So that can happen on an avalanche subnet. It can also happen on a Cosmos Zone. We see right now in adoption, JP Morgan, City, T. Rowe Price, SK Planet, a lot of mainstream institutional banks are creating avalanche subnets. And the reason they're doing this is because they can control in an outflow and they can control KYC. So 
that's the sort of general overview of Avalanche and Cosmos. They're really similar in shape and in like ideology, but they have different downstream effects because of their consensus algorithm. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really cool. If anybody's been listening to the Smart Economy podcast, especially since maybe June of 2023, a handful of our guests have dropped Easter eggs that these banks and these financial institutions, they've been quietly building over the past few years. And they might not be releasing press releases or shilling the work that they've been doing in the Web3 space, but they have been here. So it's really exciting to hear that maybe even you firsthand or some folks that have been helping these institutions learn their way around at least subnets when it comes to Avalanche. And I'm sure that there's more out there that they're doing that we're not even familiar with. So I'm curious to hear then, would you consider Landslide to be more of an Avalanche team masquerading in the Cosmos world? Or would you be more of a Cosmos team wearing a Cosmos uh, shirt in the Avalanche world? Are you like a perfect meld of both or something completely different? How would you describe that? Great question. I just wanted to give a big shout out to the Avalanche team as a whole. They've been extraordinarily helpful to us. Morgan Kropetsky is their head of institutional sales. John Wu as the head of BD has been great. And obviously Goon, Kevin, and their technical team, Stephen, Lucian, Patrick O'Grady. These guys are pushing the sort of razor's edge of where things are in terms of technical capabilities. And so, yeah, like big shout out to Avalabs. We're more like of avalanche friendly folks, primarily first. So if you imagine in your head, like each of these Web3 ecosystems communicating with one another, we're like the bridge into and out of avalanche for IBC specifically. So that means as IBC expands just out of Cosmos, fish coming out of the ocean and, and these different ecosystems communicating with each other, there's an entry point into and out of avalanche and we aim to be that. So I'm curious then, because earlier in our conversation, you were really extolling the virtues of IBC as a new kind of network. And one of the conversations I had in Washington, D.C. two weeks ago was, you've touched upon this as well, that this does become a national security issue if you ignore it. This is almost like banning crypto and blockchain networks in the U.S. is almost like saying we don't want to be a part of SWIFT in 1970. So you are talking about IBC being this new, really powerful kind of protocol. Is this on par with what the next iteration of kind of intercontinental, intergovernment rails is going to be like? Is IBC the solution? Is it part of it? Where does it fit into this new paradigm that blockchain networks are creating where we're going to eradicate SWIFT and instead have something completely new, bigger, better, faster, and more accessible. As a whole, SWIFT is being basically sunset. SWIFT has also been hacked by state actors, right? So you can Google, you can take a look that I'm not going to name them, but you can Google who the state actors are that are making the attacks on SWIFT. They are people who are not included in SWIFT. So there are obviously economic incentives for them to destroy it. That being said, other big financial instruments that we've used to underpin other asset classes like LIBOR, which is the rate at which banks can lend money to each other. These are also being reevaluated and they're basically being sunset as well. I encourage listeners, if you don't know what LIBOR is, it's L-I-B-O-R. Basically, it's a multi-sig. 
LIBOR is like a multi-sig, 15 banks, and they measure how they're going to basically lend money to each other. So that is going on. And then meanwhile, China is issuing its own central bank digital currency. Apparently, Argentina now wants to get onto the US dollar and also Bitcoin. El Salvador has been that boat. And then when you squint back from these things, each sovereign nation wants control over its own money supply. And Bitcoin in the initial Genesis block said the reason this was the reason that it was formed, which is chancellors on the brink of bailouts for the second brink of bailouts in 2008. And so this is why we're even here. So why we're even on this podcast and discussing this stupidity is that the financial systems have failed over and over and over and over again. And that's because we can't verify their ledger. That's the thing. So if we have a larger verifiable ledger that's faster and other people can participate in, that will help solve a lot of these issues. That's why Bitcoin started. Yeah, so your question is really about national security and banning crypto outright is a terrible idea because it's like banning us from the SWIFT protocol in 1970 before this was even a thing. It's a terrible idea. Regulation by enforcement, no one wants this. No one who understands the tech wants this and no one who understands the security implication wants this. So what do you do? Like you have to either lobby people like BlackRock is obviously going to push the Bitcoin ETF and it's going to go through and then the ETH ETF will happen. And then these assets will go into people's retirement funds. And that's the small sort of exposure into that. What you mentioned about, do we think about like landslide, avalanche, IBC, do we think about these things in terms of nation state adoption? I mean, we hope so. The issue is IBC is not a bridge. Okay. So there's no externally verified bridge, like a set of validators or like a concrete bridge from land to land. There's no bridge really. It's not technically a bridge. It doesn't function like a bridge and there's no central point of failure. So if you're sending something over IBC, which has processed about $40, $50 billion total, okay, nothing comes close. Chainlink doesn't come close. No other bridge comes close to what IBC is processed. So if you're sending something over IBC and it fails, it will revert. So the failure process is a lot more secure. It functions like TCPIP. So there's no validators who are really validating the transaction itself. People are relaying information and they're relayers, but there's not a third party extractive value token in the middle of IBC. Okay. And that as a characteristic is more likely to onboard institutions who want to run their own relayers, but don't want to be involved with third party tokens or third party bridges that they have to validate or get a mandate to even hold. Yeah. So then why build these cosmos zones in avalanche land? Is it because having like a subnet is much more tangible to these financial institutions? Why would it be more appealing to them to leverage IBC in cosmos zones, but do it on avalanche tech and, and that tech stack? So our bet is on avalanche consensus and IBC as a tech. In our view, the crown jewel of Cosmos is not anything except for IBC. That's like number one. The fact that even works coherently and has not lost a single dollar 
and processed billions of dollars, that's enough for us to be like, okay, this is worthwhile to build on. Whether or not institutions build on it, like we have to build the bridge there. And so a big shout out to the Interchain Foundation, who is like the steward of open source software in the Cosmos ecosystem, because they funded the open source light client that connects Cosmos to Avalanche. So even if landslide disappears or whatever, the light clients between Cosmos and Avalanche and any other IBC light clients. So a big shout out to Composable. They've built the light client for Polkadot. They're working on Solana and they were also working on ETH. Toki and the data chain team are working on Binance. So IBC is spreading out and it's spreading out in these tendrils called light clients. And these light clients are open source methods to verify our state changes, to verify the ledger. And these are all open source. Our bet is that as IBC goes up against externally verified bridges, Chainlink, Axelar, Layer Zero, Wormhole, these externally verified bridges go up against TCP IP. And in the long run, it's a race to the bottom and a bet on security. And what's the purpose of the light clients? Is that essentially just to communicate the state between each of the two chains? Yep. It's also to prevent spoofing, right? So each light client has its own ID. So that way you're sure if you're sending something from Cosmos to Avalanche, like a token, you can be sure that the state of your wallet changes as you send it to another chain. Just to be clear for the nerds out there who are going to come for me, is that there are two layers on IBC. There's a transport layer which is transporting the message. And then there's this application layer, which is transporting all the other logic. So token transfers, wallet balances, DeFi protocol. And then the next stage of that is like what the intent of that packet is. So how many folks do you have at Landslide working on? Is it safe to say it's a bridging solution or is there's more than just that? It functions like a bridge, but it's not a bridge. So it's basically like an interoperability protocol. Got it. How many folks are on your team? We've got seven people on our team. And what's the breakdown like? Is everybody kind of a jack of all trades or do you have like a avalanche expert and an IBC expert? And <laughs> Great question. Everyone is mostly developers right now. So I'm the jack of all trades. And our other developers, like our CTO, he helped contribute to Evmos when Evmos was the artist known as Ethermint in 2018. So he's an old school Cosmos dude, but he's also very well-schooled in, in Avalanche. A lot of our team is just building Go code. I'll share with you a bit about where we are in our tech stack. So the IBC Light client, which was funded by a grant from the Interchain Foundation, that's completed. And now it's headed to an audit at Halborn. And that should be done basically around April 1st. That is going to be in test. So we're in testnet now. And because we're not doing a public sale for compliance side reasons, we have a lot more tokens to give out to people to incentivize users to bridge assets from Cosmos or Polkadot or Binance. Any chain that's connected to IBC, we're happy to give out tokens to. Our testnet's open. People can go to the website and sign up. And we're going to be in testnet for a while to encourage users to bridge assets over and, and interact with. Basically, we're throwing a party between Cosmos and Avalanche and Polkadot users and as many users as we can get so that they all meet each other and the DEXs start talking natively to each other. So Osmosis assets will be natively on the Avalanche Trader Joe DEX or the Pangolin DEX or 
the validator protocols, like the liquid staking validator protocols, like GoGoPool on, on Avalanche and Stride on Cosmos, will start talking to each other natively. And so this is like a party and we're encouraging users to throw the party and we're giving them tokens to do that. Yeah, you mentioned you threw a dog whistle out there that I want to just double down on and and you brought up Ethermint. So just right now, Landslide is in testnet and the contracts are still under audit. But Ethermint is like an OG project that was trying to create like a light client that can make it easier to operate between the EVM and the Cosmos worlds. So I might have gotten it wrong. I'm not a dev. So could you just like quick Eli 5 what Ethermint is so that the folks listening to this can just get a sense of the weight that is thrown around when you're an OG building on that project and now building something like this? Sure. Well, it means that our CTO has been involved in the tech stack for a really long time. Since like 2018. Since 2018. And if people are clamoring for the trust but verify, we can provide our, our PRs if someone wants to figure out if we're telling the truth about that. Evmos is like Ether and Cosmos. And so what it's trying to, they are an EVM. So like they've brought the Ethereum virtual machine into Cosmos. They aren't bridging assets per se. As far as I understand, they weren't bridging assets from Ether to Cosmos because there hasn't been an Ethereum to Cosmos light client until basically now, like Polymer's working on it. Union is working on a ZK version and Composable is building an Ether light client as well. So what that means is Evmos is like the Ether Cosmos connect in terms of virtual machines. Yeah, that's cool. You mentioned that your team is building a lot of solutions in Go. Just curious to hear why you guys chose Golang. What are the opportunities and constraints that coding in that language offers? Yeah, so Go is a coding language that Google built and is open source. And it's used all over the blockchain stack. So when people say the word geth, G-E-T-H, that stands for Go ETH, meaning that's like the ETH packet basically that runs on Go. There's also Avalanche Go. Has, there's a big section of the Avalanche stack is written in Go. And IBC Go. And Go as a, a lower level backend programming language is really fast and scalable. And it's also standardized across different blockchain stacks. So the reason we opted for that is because it's used everywhere. And, and it's like English. It's used everywhere on, on the clients. Is it super composable in the sense that you can copy and paste? Or is it just you've seen this in another ecosystem? So you have an idea how to build it and it's much easier to build from scratch? Yeah, it's composable. Absolutely. Cool. At the risk of opening a can of worms... We spoke earlier about regulations and the impact that regional regulations can have on builders and blockchain networks within a geographic jurisdiction. So I am curious to hear a little bit about Landslide's perspective on permissioned and permissionless chains. And maybe you guys might even have a set of clients that ask you to build out permissioned chains for them. So could you maybe just expound a little bit on the team's philosophy between these two chains and maybe also share some high-level examples if you do have clients that are seeking these permission solutions from your team? Sure. Great question. So permissioned is what got us into the problems that we're in now. And that argument is correct. We don't like that, but Celsius, FTX... These type of things gets us into the permission problem. Because if it's not your keys, it's not your coins. 
And that just opens a big door to the insanity. On the other hand, permissionless, like Luna, Terra, Collapse, that was permissionless. And it was a permissionless scam, essentially, that was hard to unravel for the average person. So on both sides, people got shanked, right? It doesn't matter if you were permissioned or permissionless, if you can spin up garbage or if you can steal people's keys. And so those pieces of reality are hard to swallow. On the other hand, from a regulatory perspective, you have to have permissioned nodes. You're just not going to run a business on that. Like you can't. So if you exist in the US and you have a financial mandate, like they have a gun to your head saying, you have to do this. If you don't do this, we're going to fine you and put you in jail. It's a real simple game there. So whatever the government is telling the institutions, you have to run a purple node. If they're telling you that you have to run a purple node, it doesn't matter what ethics you have about it, what your personal opinion is, you have to do that. The people that will win that battle are those who can provide the infrastructure to do that. We think that's IBC. We think that's Avalanche. That's our thesis about it. The people who have the institutional clients are really on the BD side of Avalabs. They're the ones who are doing Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, Citibank, JP Morgan, and then all the host of video games on the top of that, right? SK Planet, Shrapnel. There's a big Ukrainian studio, a game studio off the grid that's coming out. That's like obviously a brilliant game, but the games don't want to get their traffic and their users mixed up with permissionless chains. They just, it's naive to think that over time, it just won't work. So yeah, the big clients, I'd say Ava Labs is doing a great job of closing. If you look on the Cosmos side, DYDX is a massive client that has open sourced all their work. To give you an idea, in the last seven days, DYDX processed $33 million. You can see that on Map of Zones. The Noble team is building a great partnership with Circle and USDC. And in the last seven days, Noble's processed $64 million. And then there are other groups inside of Cosmos, Millicent, Millicent.io, they're one that's building with a host of institutional clients and you can see them on their website. So the way that we help out institutional clients is in some sense, we can just build the lower level TCP IP protocol for them to build on. And then when people start using it, we'll benefit from that. So at the beginning of the conversation, I asked you how the resiliency in DeFi can be improved by these interoperability protocols connecting different ecosystems. But now after what I just heard you say, I'm wondering, is TradFi and are these new games that are leveraging digital assets, are these ecosystems actually going to become strengthened and emboldened by interoperability protocols? Yep. It depends on the game and it depends on the company. So if you're a company like I know off the grid, they want to keep their NFTs on their own chain and they want to control the validators. That said, they would be open to ideas getting new users if those NFTs were transferable into Stargaze on Cosmos or some of the other NFT projects via IBC. They're open to that. They just want to, at the same time, maintain their control of their validators because they're a corporation. That said, there's an IBC function called a solo machine, which is like perfect for central bank digital currencies, CBDCs to launch. And also you can control basically everything there. It's like a solo machine, but without the connections to other IBC 
channels like Avalanche or Cosmos, it becomes less useful. The question is, how do these assets interact over time? They're going to interact over time if there's the channel there and the legal mandate. So these institutions are just like older versions of us, more conservative versions of us who have a different mandate than us, but they all see the writing on the wall, right? Like the game is, there's no other casino in town, right? <laughs> you can't go and get blood from a stone in the stock market. If you want to get crazy returns, there's a certain section of the market you can do that. And that's called crypto. You can get your face ripped off or you can like verify and be very conservative and do very little. Like Bitcoiners are great at this. Long-term Bitcoin holders are just like great at that. They view everything else as a risk and they just do this one thing. So what does DeFi look like long-term? You're going to have both permissioned and permissionless and you just need the pipes to build that. And we hope that's IBC and we hope that's Avalanche. You mentioned that you're working with financial institutions, and I'm sure that the conversations around the water coolers. Sorry, so we're not. Okay. It directly, honestly, we don't have them in our Rolodex. Like Ava Labs business development does. And if you want to take a look, shout out to Morgan Kropetsky, John Wu, and the entire BD tank team at, at Ava Labs. They do a massive job about reaching out to institutions. The ICF, Interchain Foundation at Cosmos also does a really good job of reaching out to institutions. We've been working on building a consortium of IBC-enabled chains. And so that consortium could be of help to institutions like providing education. A lot like R3, Corda did their reach out. So we're putting together that as well. Everyone's like, where is IBC? What is IBC doing? And so there's obviously some education to reach out to do. The rubbing elbows isn't really native to Landslide. Perfect. Then I guess I'll just pivot a little bit. You and your team are part of the Interchain Builders Program. So can you just expand a little bit on what that is? Is it just aggregation of builders in IBC land? Or is it more of a top-down focused sort of strategy from the Interchain Foundation? Oh, great question, man. <laughs> this is a great interview, man. You've really done your homework and I appreciate your diligence on this. So the Interchain Builders Program, we were selected as a Q3 participant. You can Google the Interchain Builders Program. It's free to enter. You basically apply and you get added to a group of similar builders who are building in the Interchain. Interchain has mostly been focused on Cosmos, but that's expanding, obviously, as IBC goes out. So it's been a community from the ICF and also other Web3 business owners who can share diligence reports on investors or deal flow in terms of your fundraise. The team there, shout out to Gnome and Steph Sprins at the ICF. They've done an enormous help helping startups like with their go-to-market strategy, with feedback on their tech with feedback on networking a lot just a lot of this stuff in cosmos is really and web3 is, is really getting a community of people that you can trust trust but verify is also really valuable so the builders program has basically been like a small version of a cohort they help you with some of the basics yeah that's really cool something else that i was curious to hear a little bit more and what you were saying in your previous response to my question is are there any kind of like ways that you and your team have contributed to either IBC land or avalanche land using lessons that you learned about building this quote unquote bridge between the two. Maybe like you found a defunct piece of code that because you were trying to connect IBC to a subnet, 
that this is now something that you and your team were able to raise the flag of awareness on and state, hey, this is a new issue that we found because we're doing this unique type of bridging two ecosystems. Have there been any examples of things you've learned about the other chain because you've been connecting another chain to it? There were no like bugs, undisclosed bugs that we didn't report. And there was never a up the chain of command. That never happened. We've been working on this on the light client basically all year. And here's where I get to shout out to the Strangelove team. Strangelove is one of the stewards of the Cosmos space. And they've been helping us all year. Shout out to Jack Zamplin and Andrew and Alex on their team there. They've been enormously helpful to us from the Cosmos side and explaining how IBC Go and how the relayers function. So we've had weekly standups with them. And from the Ava Lab side, their team, Lucian and Steven in particular, and Patrick O'Grady have been enormously helpful communicating between those two languages. That said, the interesting thing, we didn't find a bug, but we've solved an intractable issue, which other teams have tried to solve, which was how do you make Tendermint communicate to Avalanche consensus? Because they're two different consensus algorithms, and we've solved how to do that within the IBC Lite client. And we can get into a Tendermint discussion and I can clearly explain the avalanche consensus to listeners. Oh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Tendermint. The ecosystem I've been in day in and day out uses a BFT as well for its consensus mechanism. So maybe you can share just maybe high level a few key takeaways of Avalanche's, I guess, delegated proof of stake consensus mechanism, and then also how that communicates with Tendermint BFT. Great. Okay, so Avalanche doesn't use DPoS, delegated proof of stake. It's not in per se as the term. So stepping back, when you think about consensus, you're like in a stadium and you're trying to establish like blue or red and you're trying to pull people in the stadium, blue or red. And in Tendermint, all of the people in the stadium have to talk to each other. Everybody in the stadium has to literally talk to every other single person in the stadium to determine blue or red. And that's why in the Cosmos white paper, you can look at it and you could see that the atom validators are capped at 300. Hard cap 300 in the Cosmos white paper. That's a downstream effect of the Tendermint consensus algorithm, the method that they use to determine red or blue. In Avalanche, it's different. Not every person has to talk to every other person. A single person asks like five people, for example, red or blue. And then those five people ask another five people and those five people ask another five people. So you're still polling the stadium. You're just not, you personally don't have to ask a thousand people red or blue. So you're still achieving consensus around the decision. You don't run into this problem. Now, the problem colloquially in the industry is called the N squared problem. And this is as validators, as you get more and more validators, basically people participating in the network, that problem becomes it's a quadratic problem. It becomes a larger problem faster. So Avalanche doesn't have this. It's a subsampling. So you sample a small section of the stadium and say, hey, man, red or blue. So yeah, that's how that works. And then in terms of how that works in the light client itself, a simple explanation is waiting for the header on the block, like on Cosmos, to be relayed into Avalanche and waiting for that to confirm on the light client side. That's the simple explanation. 
So we're getting near the end of our conversation. I'm just curious to hear, let's say six months from now, Landslide is now live on both mainnets. As a retail user, what are some use cases that I can expect to interact with Landslide? Our success will be if people don't know they're using Landslide. That's the biggest success. Our ideal scenario is that someone wants to send Osmo tokens on Osmosis to Osmo on Trader Joe in a single swap. And landslide tokens are just abstracted from that. So that when that transaction happens, they send tokens from Osmosis and they show an intent in the transaction, which is a UX that's going to be on Osmosis. I want to swap this on Osmosis on Avalanche. That whole chain of events just happens. And they don't think about me. They don't think about landslide. They just think about the swap. So there's some steps we have to take to get there. But the end stage is that we don't want to build a competitor to the DEXs. We don't want to build app competitors. We want to build these pipe systems so that the pipes work and that these existing apps can start communicating. Yeah, and you mentioned a few times a potential landslide token that folks can go out and earn and be rewarded for participating in testnet. To me, it sounds like the landslide token will be used to maybe vote for validators on either network and also maybe even be used to migrate between IBC and Avalanche subnet land. Maybe I'm incorrect or misunderstanding. Can you just share a little bit more about what the use cases and the uses for the landslide token will be? Okay, so when you transfer tokens between IBC zones, you don't assume anything about the bridge. IBC is just, there's no assumption you make. You're just trusting that IBC functions. However, you are trusting that the target and the source chain are valid. So if Osmosis somehow gets malicious and it gets attacked or Landslide gets attacked, so you have to use the Landslide tokens to keep the target or the source chain on the avalanche side safe. So the ideal scenario is that Landslide becomes permissionless so that anybody can validate it. It should not be, you don't need to KYC, that's not involved at all. And Avalanche is also spinning up a like sort of pay-as-you-go validator and subnet-only validators. So what this means for Cosmos validators or Polkadot validators or Bitcoin validators is that these economic security guarantees can be transferred between subnets and transferred between chains. Each blockchain has its own validator set and it's keeping the chain secure. We see this in Cosmos evolving into providing security for other chains. So it's like if your house is secure, you can provide your security system to another house. And this is called mesh security and mesh security is expanding. You can see this in the Babylon chain, big shout out to their team. They're providing Bitcoin staking security basically to Cosmos. So that means they're allowing Bitcoin stakers in a permissionless contract to earn fees on other networks. Very cool. So is it safe to say that Landslide will be its own security provider then for all the chains that it interacts with? Yeah. So the Landslide validators will provide economic security to Landslide. And then the next step is Cosmos validators will provide security to Landslide. Bitcoin people through Babylon will provide security to Landslide. So that's how that will work. So Landslide tokens keep Landslide safe alongside 
obviously the consensus and uptime of the validators. There is no slashing. As you can see in Cosmos, there's slashing for validators. You don't need to do that. We're opted not to do that. It's a whole other rabbit hole, but there's no slashing that takes place. It's just, you just don't collect the rewards. So yeah, the short answer to your question is, yes, we're offering users tokens for performing exercises like, you know, bridge Noble to Avalanche and back bridge Osmo from Avalanche to back, like spin up a permissionless chainlet on Saga and bridge that on Avalanche, build a generalized abstraction layer on Burnt and bridge that to Avalanche, bridge tokens from Composable, like bridge Polkadot tokens from Kusama, from Composable into Avalanche and back. So this is just like getting people into the Monopoly game of how the players and the moves work. Awesome. And you guys mentioned that your contracts are under audit right now, due to be back in April. So I'm assuming maybe when mainnet is probably sometime middle of next year. If I'm right, let me know. If not, what else is on the roadmap? Yeah, great question. So Halborn is auditing our IBC Lite client, Oak Security, shout out to them, Cosmos-focused security firm. They're auditing our Cosmos client, our Cosm Wasm VM. We also have an EVM. And so all of these pieces are being audited, but as long as they're in testnet, they're considered safe. And that's the other piece of paying people in the tokens is that they're going to be able to perform some feedback for us on those packages. So yeah, mainnet is probably April, May, somewhere around there. If the bull run keeps running and more IBC chains keep running on, turning on onto mainnet, we'll extend the incentivized testnet to you know, a little further. Cool. And if someone is listening to this and they're interested in testing out Landslide, where should we send the listeners? Yeah, landslide.network. Awesome. Nathan, this was a super fun conversation. I've been playing around in the Cosmos ecosystem for a handful of years now, and it was really cool to hear the lessons learned that your team is bringing from building in both IBC and Avalanche land. And also really cool to hear just the Cornell ties and how you ended up in both of these ecosystems. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come join us on the Smart Economy podcast today. It was a fascinating conversation. Dylan, I appreciate your time and your diligence and preparation, sir. Well done. I appreciate it. Well, hopefully there's still enough time today for you to do a little surfing. Oh, yeah. Cheers, brother. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was fascinating to hear about the connection to Cornell that both the founders in Avalanche and Cosmos have, and that Nathan seemed like he was poised to be in the right place at the right time. It was also really interesting to learn more about the strengths that an Avalanche Cosmos bridged landscape can yield. And I really enjoyed learning about the differences and similarities between the two consensus mechanisms for both networks. Head over to landslide.network to begin testing out the testnet now. To keep up to date with the Smart Economy Podcast, head over to smarteconomypodcast.com and please don't hesitate to rate and review any of these episodes if you've enjoyed listening to them. The more folks that rate and review, the more we get to be put into other people's ears and eyes. And of course, if you are a NEO token holder, please consider voting for NEO News Today as your NEO Council representative. We've proudly been serving the NEO ecosystem since 2017, and will continue to do so by putting portions of our council income 
directly back into ecosystem growth initiatives. With all that said, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. And we look forward to catching you next time.